Now tonight, as we look at Son of Suffering, I want to make very clear to you that as we look at the crucifixion of Christ, there is no way to sugarcoat it. There is no way to downplay it. There is no way to make it any easier to read. It is a crucifixion. It is a crucifixion. And tonight, I do pray it is heavy. I pray that we would not ever be able to study what Christ went through for us and not walk out with a heavy heart. Genuinely. There's many of you who have been in church longer than I have, who know the gospel longer than I have, many of you. The number one sign that the enemy has a stronghold in your life is that you're numb to the true gospel, which is that Christ suffered, Christ died, but Christ rose from the dead. Amen? We cannot grow numb to the gospel. Now let me paint this scene before we read. Jesus' earthly ministry began when he was 30 years old. He healed people. He did miracles, changed lives, talked to the exiles of society, right? Loved on people, touched lepers, walked on water, all the amazing things we read about in Scripture. Like he has this incredible earthly ministry. But all along the way, he's rejected. All along the way, he's persecuted, right? He has to continually correct his disciples, right? You remember the argument where they're talking about who is the greatest. And he says, you know, in the kingdom of heaven, least is greatest. Like you want to be the least of all. Right, like there's all along the way, Jesus' earthly ministry is truly impactful. But there is no event more impactful than the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And he comes to this point, he comes to this point in his ministry where it's time for him to do what he came to earth to do. That because we had a problem, sin, because we found ourselves trapped in our choices and our sin, Jesus came down to pay the penalty of sin. Now I want you to understand, I, ha- I have a lot of notes on this. The Romans did not invent the method of crucifixion, but they perfected it. They didn't invent it, but they perfected it, meaning they made it the most gruesome torture method known to men. The whole, when you look at this cross on stage, which, by the way, small plug, Dakota carried this on his back, so he carried his cross for the day, so amen. But was, this was probably easy for him because, you know, he benches 405. When you look at the cross, this truly is a torture method, and the goal was a slow painful death. Like that was the whole goal. They perfected it for the sake of capital punishment in order for it to be a slow, painful death. They did not want you to die quick. And we talked a few weeks ago, even in this semester, you remember the sermon, it's not just a cross. You can imagine the trauma of witnessing a crucifixion. Imagine going through it. Well, tonight we cannot preach the cross and not talk about what Jesus went through. And so I want you to understand a little bit of the true reality of a crucifixion. For Jesus, the combination of scourging and crucifixion made his death brutal. And what's amazing is historians who were not Christians even write in their articles. There's, there's, you can look it up. There's artifacts going way back where people who did not believe in Christ highlighted that they had heard about and seen the crucifixion. Of Jesus, I mean, his death on the cross is a huge historical event. Like, uh, you cannot disprove that he died on that cross. And then we believe rose from the grave. Right? Like, that is a known event. And here's what he would have gone through. The victim's back is first torn open by the scourging. The skin is ripped off. And then the clotting blood that was ripped open where the clothes were torn off begins to rub up against the wooden cross. All right, so his back would have been torn. There would have been blood. There would have been dirt. 
in his wounds. This is the reality of what Jesus went through. It's heavy. Whoever was being crucified was thrown on the ground to fix his hands to the crossbeam, and the wounds on his back were torn open again. Then as the victim hung on the cross, each breath caused the painful wounds on the back to scrape against the wood of the beam. In order to breathe, they would have to lift themselves up on the cross. And in lifting themselves up on the cross, whether it was Jesus or anybody, their back, the wounds from the scourging, would have rubbed against the beam. You can imagine that pain. I mean, we, we, we in here cannot even fathom the physical torture that would have gone into the crucifixion. When the nail was driven through the wrists, it severed a large nerve, and the nerve began to send excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms. Beyond the extreme pain, I wrote this down in some of my study on this, the major effect of crucifixion was to restrict normal breathing. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and shoulders tended to fix the respiratory muscles in an inhalation state and hinder exhalation. The lack of adequate respiration resulted in severe muscle cramps, which further hindered breathing. To get a good breath, here's where that, that study comes from, the victim had to push against the feet, flex the elbows, pulling from the shoulders putting the weight of their body on their feet, producing extreme pain. And flexing the elbows would have twisted their hands hanging on the nails. Lifting the body for a breath caused painful, painful scrapes along the back again. Each effort just to get, and this is very important because what we're looking at tonight with Jesus talking, each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing and exhausting. One commentator wrote down, because I, guys, I want us to understand this. It was not uncommon for insects to burrow into the open wounds of the victims as they hung on the cross. Birds of prey would tear away at the victims. Death from crucifixion could come from many sources. Blood loss, too exhausted to breathe anymore, dehydration, etc., etc., etc. And then lastly, this is important for tonight as well. If the victim did not die quickly enough, the legs were broken, and the victim was soon unable to breathe because of the posture of the crucified person. One commentator wrote, how bad was crucifixion? We get our English word excruciating from the Roman word out of the cross. Let me read that again. How bad was crucifixion? We get our English word excruciating from the Roman word, quote, out of the cross. Consider how atrocious sin must be in the sight of God when it would require such a sacrifice. That's a little bit of what Jesus would have endured physically. Now, let me tell you this, though. Jesus was in control the entire time. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Jesus was in control the entire time. The most significant thing about Jesus and his suffering was that he was not in any way a victim to his circumstances. Jesus was in control. Jesus said this of his life, okay? Jesus said this in the Gospel of John of his life. This is John 10, verse 18. He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. It is terrible to be forced to endure such torture, but to freely choose it out of love is remarkable. His love for you. And he says right here, you can see, I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Now, as we go to Scripture, here's what I want us to do tonight. I want to show you the seven statements that Jesus made on the cross. Do you know what they are? 
How many do you know? The seven statements he made while he was on the cross. He said seven things. Not all seven are in one gospel. You have to go to three gospels to find them. In uh, Luke, John, and Matthew. But he said seven statements on the cross. And each one has a profound impact on the moment that he hung and on our lives. Seven statements. So look with me. We're going to read from Luke 23. And this is starting in verse 32. This is Luke chapter 23 starting in verse 32. It says this, two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, here's the first statement that we're going to break down. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. There's a God who weeps. There's a God who bleeds. Jesus' first statement, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. They divided his clothes and cast lots. Verse 35, the people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Except it was that Jesus laid down his life and did not save himself in this moment that we could even be saved. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. The Jews did not like that. They wanted it to be changed to, He said he was the king of the Jews. They would not. The inscription read, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment. We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he turns and he says, Jesus. Some translations say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, verse 43, he said to him, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. This whole interaction is happening during a crucifixion. They are hanging on the cross talking. Like sometimes we don't get that. Like sometimes we read this and like we, we just see it as like a dialogue back and forth. Like truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Like they're hanging on a tree. They cannot leave. Like cannot get off the cross, right? Like bring this to life. Some of us hate being stuck in traffic. Where some of us are claustrophobic. We hate when we get stuck in small places. Imagine hanging on a tree for everybody to see and not being able to go anywhere. Like, that's it. There's your life. And that's the dialogue they're having. And Jesus tells the criminal this. We're going to talk more about this in a minute. Verse 44. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. The veil was torn. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Not only that, before that, though, let's look at John, if we have this, 19. This is verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, 
He said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then John 19, verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. And then John 19, verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. To Telestai. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And the last one, Matthew 27, verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Let's walk through these. Here's the first one. Number one, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This prayer fulfills an ancient prophecy. I'll give you a moment as you're writing that down. This prayer fulfills an ancient prophecy. Many were fulfilled on the cross that day. And it comes from Isaiah 53, uh, verse 12. It says this, Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many, and then look at this, and interceded for the rebels. Now as you study Jesus' life and his ministry, you see very quickly that Jesus prayed all the time. Jesus was praying often. A lot of times, though, we don't know what Jesus prayed. You know why we don't always know what Jesus prayed while he was on earth? Because he would retreat. He would retreat to quiet places, isolated places. He would go where there were no distractions where he could pray. And a lot of commentators have said that it's very much believed that Jesus prayed for his enemies all throughout his ministry, all throughout his earthly ministry. This happens to be one that we have recorded. And the reason why we have this recorded is because he could not retreat to a silent place. He had no quiet place to go. He was hanging on the cross. And so when Jesus does this, I want you to understand, Mallory, that when Jesus prays for his enemies to be forgiven, the ones crucifying him to be forgiven, he does what he has commanded you and me to do. In Matthew 5, verse 44, it says this, Jesus tells us, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's what's amazing about our culture and our world today is how, how much we lack forgiveness. Yet in one of the most tragic events in human history, the so-called Messiah claimed to be was praying for his enemies to be forgiven. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. As we look at the cross, we have to ask ourselves the questions. Have you forgiven? Have you been forgiven? You see, forgiveness from Christ is offered to those who ask for it, who repent and turn from their sins, who say, hey, I cannot do this. I have broken God's command. I have broken God's law. And I cannot do this alone. And I ask for forgiveness. Have you been forgiven in your life? Because whenever you talk about forgiveness, a lot of pastors have written it that it's it's the topic that gets preached on that draws the biggest response. People respond when we talk about forgiveness. And for two reasons. One, we all seek it. And two, deep down, we really do want to give it. Because we don't want to live in strife with one another. We really do want a smooth life, a loving life, filled with people who love us and have our best interests at heart. We crave that. But yet we don't offer forgiveness because, one, we don't always know that we're forgiven. In this room, as we look at the cross, 
What do you have in your life beneath the surface that nobody else sees? We all have it. What in your life plagues you? What's causing shame and guilt? What in your life is the darkness hanging over your head, what you can't seem to get away from? It's heavy, isn't it? I know. But this is what we're called to preach on because in Christ is the only place we can find forgiveness. See, that's why I believe in the church. We should talk about things such as sexual immorality and pornography because you're not going to find freedom in the world from it. The place you're supposed to find it is at the cross. And there's some of us in here, men and women, who have that stronghold in our life. And it causes so much shame and guilt, doesn't it? It's a sensitive one. Sexual immorality, pornography, it's a sensitive one. But I'll tell you what, just like every other sin, Jesus paid the price of that sin on the cross. He died for it. And then rose for it. And for some of you, that's a big stronghold in your life. And I'll tell you, where do you find freedom? The cross of Christ. For some of you, let me take it a step further. It's a, a deep harboring within against somebody else. It's a hatred. It's a bitterness. It's an anger that you have towards another person. Man, that person that you hate, Jesus died for them too. Jesus died for their sins, and he died for your sins but you and I can never truly experience the forgiveness of Christ in our lives, in our heart, until we're willing to forgive the other children of God, the other ones who have been made in the image of God. Is there anybody in your heart you have not forgiven? There's no better thing to ask when we get to the crucifixion is, are you forgiven? And have you forgiven? Here's my follow-up. If you have not been forgiven yet because you haven't repented for it, are you willing to? Tonight, what would keep you? Do you really want that sin more? It's only draining the life from you. It's not bringing you any joy or any fulfillment. You could lay it down at the cross tonight and know that Jesus paid the price for that sin. Now on the second thing, do you really want to keep that person in a cage in your heart that you won't forgive? Because Jesus, as he on the cross, was more free than anybody else ever was. <laughs> But as long as you keep that person in a cage in your heart, you are putting handcuffs on yourself. It's often said that unforgiveness, Elijah, is like holding the blade of a knife. The, the harder you squeeze on to unforgiveness, the more it only cuts you. Have you forgiven? And have you been forgiven? In this moment, the very first thing that Jesus says is, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Colossians 3, verse 13 says this, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. I love this quote that I read in my study about Jesus. Look at this. It says, in light of what is known about the process of ancient Roman crucifixion, it's incredible to think that the world's greatest defender was not once found to be defending his own innocence or even returning an angry word upon his deserving accusers. It's incredible that Jesus was silent. Why? He was innocent. He was sinless. He remained silent because he was choosing to take your place. So when they asked Jesus, hey, are you guilty of this? Jesus was not. 
But he accepted taking on what you and I have done to become our sacrifice. And he paid your price. And in the process of doing it, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Have you forgiven? And have you been forgiven? Because forgiveness is offered to anybody who will repent and call on the name of the Lord. Not only that, but Jesus says this, number two, today you will be with me in paradise. And I love this one because this is such an encouraging moment. <laughs> like in the midst of a crucifixion, you find one of the most encouraging conversations of all time. You ever thought about that? Some of us come to church services every week and we can't have any encouraging conversations. We wonder why we don't talk to anybody and we wonder why nobody talks to us. But we had one of the most encouraging conversations in all history, and it happened while two guys were on a cross. <laughs> this conversation that is laid out between the criminal who's being crucified and Jesus is truly astounding to read. This criminal who was saved in this moment, Sean had no baptism, had no works, no good works, didn't, couldn't go and love his neighbor with the love of Christ because, you know, the only other neighbor he had was Jesus and the other criminal on the cross. Couldn't, humor me for a minute, couldn't have any church attendance. Couldn't have any life group attendance. Couldn't have a study Bible. Couldn't have a journal. Couldn't have coffee. Right? All the things that are associated with the Christian life, the stereotypes. Couldn't lift his hands. And walk, like nothing. He had nothing. Lane, he had not a single thing. Nothing. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. How is that possible? Because if you listen to our culture, our culture is telling you over and over that you have got to be enough in order to get in. And there's other religions that are trying to convince you that maybe the scales will tip in your favor in the afterlife if you do more good than bad. I'm telling you as a transformed believer because of Christ that there is a better way. This moment, what's amazing when you study this is that Here's what happened for the criminal. The criminal who entered paradise was Jesus. This will come up on the screen. Uh, a, he respected God, right? Look at this with me uh, in, in your Bible, if you will. It says this, verse 40. This is Luke 23, verse 40. The other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God? So we know he respected God. But not only that, B, he knew sin. He knew his sin, right? He says this, verse 40. Since you are undergoing the same punishment, verse 41, we are punished justly. Like we have messed up because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. And then he says, but this man has done nothing wrong. So see, he knew that Jesus was innocent. This is all he had. He respected God. He knew sin. He knew his punishment. He knew Jesus was innocent. And then look what he does next. Then he said, Jesus. He calls out to Jesus. To Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He called out to Jesus. And then I love this last one. He believed Jesus was who he said he was. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believed Jesus had a kingdom. He believed Jesus was who Jesus said he was. This is all he had was repentance and faith, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He believed he was the Messiah and the Messiah to come, and he entered paradise. 
What are you and I lacking? Why do we not celebrate more that we know Jesus? Why do we walk around thinking, man, i got to get cleaned up before I get in the waters of baptism? That's defeating the purpose of getting in the waters. Why do we walk around thinking, man, i got to clean myself up before I go to Jesus? i got to clean myself up before I go to prayer. We walk around thinking, man, i got to get rid of this sin before I pray. No, that's backwards. You pray, and then he gets rid of your sin. You and I got it backwards. You can't clean yourself up and then go pray. He's the one that does the work in you. He's the one that transforms you. And he can if you will call out on his name. I love this quote. I have a lot of quotes I'm going to give you. You can take pictures or whatever you want to do. I love this quote when I was studying. It says, it is worthy to remark that this man appears to have been the first who believed in the intercession of Christ. Right? That in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that Christ is the one who intercedes on behalf of us. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, Jesus, when we stand before God, when we stand before the Father, remember me because you're the lawyer I need to attest that I'm calling out to you. He says, I'm hanging here on this tree. I can't do anything. I can't save myself. I can't get myself off this cross. But he believed that that person in the middle that was nailed to that tree was innocent and could do it. And he was saved. It's remarkable. The intercession of Christ, that Christ would go on behalf of you and me to God the Father and testify for us. I told some of our leaders a few moments ago that this assurance from Jesus, that when Jesus said this, it cost him something. That everything Jesus did on the cross cost him something. Nothing was free that day. Everything cost something that day. Remember, they're hanging from a tree. We talked a minute ago about what it took to speak. That in order to get breath in your lungs, you had to lift yourself up, pushing the nails in your feet, like those those blades cutting into your shoulders, and you have to lift yourself up just to be able to speak. So in order for Jesus to even say to him, today you will be with me in paradise, it cost him something. It cost him pain. It cost him agony. It cost him breath. It cost him blood. It cost him something to tell the thief that day, truly today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus paid that cost. That's minuscule. Jesus paid the cost it took to assure the criminal that he would be with him today in paradise. And if Jesus would go to that length through the middle of a crucifixion, I guarantee you Jesus has gone through the length to pay the cost to win your soul for the kingdom of heaven. Everything on the cross cost something. Didn't none of it come free? None of it. Every bit of it. He lifts himself up to assure this man, today you'll be with me in paradise. I'll tell you one other thing. I'll put this on the screen because I think it's amazing. Jesus answered the second criminal far beyond his beliefs. (laughs) Like everything the criminal said, Jesus upped it. Did you notice that when you read it? Some of you have never noticed this. Watch this. I love this. This might blow your mind. I pray that it does. The thief on the cross, when he said this, had some distant time in his mind. Jesus told him today. Think about this. The thief said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief is thinking down the road. Jesus says, oh, that's today. (laughs) Like you didn't know, but today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus talks about the present. Number two, the thief on the cross asked just to be remembered. And Jesus told him, oh, you're going to be with me. (laughs) That Jesus isn't just sending a letter to the Father Far away to say, hey, oh, yeah, that guy on the cross that you remember who was with me, yeah, he's good too. Know that like when he stands before God the Father, Jesus is right there. He's saying, you will be with me, with me, ups the ante. And then the last one, the third one, the thief on the cross looked only for a kingdom. (laughs) Jesus promised him paradise. Paradise. I can promise you 
Jesus will always exceed your expectations in every way. In whatever way you need him to provide, in whatever way you need him to show up for you. It may not be the way you want. It may not be the way that you would choose. You and I may suffer. But Jesus will exceed your expectations. He always has and he always will. Not only that, number three, he says, woman, behold your son. It's hard to imagine as Mary stood there watching her son be crucified. Jesus, I love this, I wrote this down, he consciously cared for his mother to the very end, showing that even on the cross, his attention was directed to others and not upon himself. One commentator said, if there was ever a moment when Jesus deserved to be self-focused, it was this. Yet he remained others-focused until the end. And then Jesus calls John's attention to Mary in that text. And I want to tell you one thing that's really cool. Is that when Jesus, in John 19, when he calls John, the disciples, attention to his mother... He doesn't say anything specific, but John knows what to do when you read that. I'll tell you very briefly. Jesus did not tell John, take care of my mother. All Jesus needed to do was describe the relationship between them. And he knew that the rest would properly follow. John took her to his home. They both obeyed Jesus' command. When Jesus points out his mother to John, John takes care of her. And Jesus needed to give no further explanation on what he expected. Spurgeon said it this way. He said in this quote, it'll be on the screen, there was no specific direction given to John to entertain Mary. It was quite enough for the Lord to call his attention to her by saying, behold, thy mother. And Spurgeon said, I wish we were always in such a state of heart that we did not need specific precepts. Just a hint would suffice. If I can give you an example, my, my mom is here tonight. She comes to every Monday service and when my mom is coming in and needing a seat or when my mom is leaving and going home, I look at Hannah and I give Hannah a look. I give her a nod. Or I say, my mom's leaving. And Hannah never has to ask me, what do you want me to do about that? <laughs> like, never. Hannah never says, well, what are you telling me for? She says, I got it. And that's the whole exchange that we have. And what Hannah does without me asking is she helps my mom find a seat. And then she walks my mom through the lobby. And she does that because Hannah doesn't need specific instructions to understand what I'm asking her to do because we're on the same page. It's time to love my mom. She gets it. A hint is enough. And what I love about this Spurgeon quote is he's saying in our relationships between each other, he wishes that we would love each other so deeply that just a hint, just a hint, just Jesus saying, love your neighbor would be enough for us to go the extra mile would be enough for us to forgive somebody. That just Jesus commanding us to say, love your neighbor, would cause us to forgive them. Would cause them, if they need a shirt, we'd give them our coat too. That if they need to walk one mile, we'd walk with them too, right? This whole idea that we would do more just by a hint. But instead, our culture has to have it spelled out for us to love our neighbor. Or our neighbor's got to do something for us first before we love them with the love of Christ. Woo, I'm not loving them until they love me first. Stop the way Jesus did it on the cross. He says, woman, behold 
your son. Number four, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is from Matthew 26, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word that's used here is that he cried. Cried out with a loud voice. And that is no, that translation is no simple word for cried. It is agony and pain in that. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus calls to God and doesn't refer to him as Father. The only recorded time where he refers to him not as Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in doing this, he quotes from Psalm 22, fulfilling even more ancient prophecy. This one quote says, his one moan is concerning his God. Look at this. It is not, why has Peter forsaken me? It is not, why has Judas betrayed me? These were sharp griefs, but this is the sharpest. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? College students, let me have your eyes. In this moment, a holy transaction is taking place. A payment is being made. There is something amazing happening and there is something tragic happening. All in one, the hinge of human history is happening in this moment right here. There is a holy transaction happening. This is why Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father is regarding God the Son as if he were a sinner. God the Father is looking and acting as if Jesus was a sinner. And the reason why is for you and for me. You say, Daniel, where does that come from? I'll show you. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That that right there is what's taking place in this moment. What's happening here is that on the cross, Jesus is enduring the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship because the sin of the world has been placed upon him. And he is enduring the full wrath of God. On that cross, the physical suffering, we can't imagine. Fernando, it's tragic. But it's the spiritual suffering. This is what we see to be on Jesus' mind as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why he's praying so fervently is because of this cup that he's having to drink for you and for me. That's what's taking place right here. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, as Isaiah 53, 10 says, for you and me. The easiest application to this is that how often are we grieved over our sin? Because Jesus was grieved, grieved in this moment for what he was enduring. And every single day that you live as a Christian, I'm speaking to Christians, that every single day that you live, your sin hurts your fellowship with the Lord. Every day. That when you and I choose sin, and when we live in sin, when we, when we choose to prioritize it, it is hurting your fellowship with the Father. You cannot lose your salvation. Once you're saved, he's got you. But every day that you and I choose sin, we are hurting our fellowship with God. Does that grieve us? Does that hurt us? Like gossip, does it grieve us? Does jealousy grieve us? Does sexual immorality grieve us? When we see homelessness and murder and, and, and tornadoes, 
And hurricanes and tragedies happen on the news. Does it grieve us to see the fallen world we live in? Like, are we grieved or do we become so numb to the news and to Instagram reels and all the tragedy that we see that it doesn't even grieve us anymore? That our own sin as believers does not grieve us. It's a scary place to be. I think this is the last Spurgeon quote I'll give you, but he has a lot of them on the, on the crucifixion. Spurgeon said that sin murdered Christ. How can you be friends with sin? Sin pierced the heart of God. How can you love sin? If you don't like that, take it up with Spurgeon. Not me. I believe he's right. And then number five. In John 19, 28, Jesus says, I thirst. I thirst. I'm thirsty. This is a common man's ministry. This is a common man's misery. I'm sorry. This is a very simple misery. All of us have felt the torture of being thirsty. At one point in our lives, all of us have needed water. I remember as a kid when I would play outside, I would play basketball every single day in the neighborhood. Every single day we'd play basketball, driveway basketball, just hooping, just hooping all day long. And at the end of the day, I'd be tired. My mouth would hurt. My, my throat would be dry. And I'd run inside and get that glass of water. I had one guy who would play all day long in the, in the heat, not drink a single ounce of water, go inside and start drinking milk from the jug. <laughs> I don't know where he is now. <laughs> Probably in jail. <laughs> For real. <laughs> water. You can imagine that, that moment, right, when you get it. And this is so important that Jesus says this because it's showing his humanity. Like the the most common misery you and I can have, like the simplest misery is to be thirsty. And Jesus in this moment says that he is thirsty. We see people every day on the corner of the streets of Memphis who are thirsty and have no water. They have no food. They have no home. In this moment, Jesus' suffering is not only spiritual, it's physical, and it's relatable. And all that humanity offers to serve him is sour wine. Think about this. The first act of service to Christ on the cross from humanity was sour wine. The first act of service to Christ on the cross was sour wine. The humanity of Christ could not be more on display. When Jesus says, I thirst, I love this because he realizes the worst is over, the price has been paid, and he's doing this because he needs to wet his throat. After all this time on the cross, you can imagine how dry his throat was from breathing, from talking to the thief on the, on the cross, his throat would have been dry. He needs to wet it. Why? He needs to wet it for a reason because he needs to speak. He needs to say something else, but I love it because he needs to proclaim it. It is not a whisper that comes next. It is not a minuscule statement. It is a proclamation. He yells this next statement. So when he's thirsty, understand. I don't know if you've ever connected this. He needs to wet his throat because he has something else to say. He wets his throat. He lifts himself up, and he says number six. It is finished. To tell us that it is done. He raises himself up on the cross to yell and proclaim, "It is finished." The prophecies fulfilled. The promises fulfilled. The debt paid. Death overcome. The enemy crushed. Your sin covered, hope offered. It is finished, he proclaims. It's done. 
There's no more need for Jesus to suffer. And he proclaims this. I put this in my notes. What he is saying is done is Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. This is where our song comes from tonight. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pain. But in turn we regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punished for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. That's where that lyric comes from. We all went astray like sheep. We all turned away to our own. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before it, he did not open his mouth. A single word can change everything. Can it not? Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? A single word can change everything. When you're on one knee asking somebody to marry you, uh, yes and no makes a big difference. Yes and no makes a big difference. One word can change everything. When you're standing there at your wedding and it's time to say, I do or I don't, one word can change everything. I wrote this down too. Uh, when you're standing in court, guilty or not guilty, that word makes a big difference. The whole future that you have is riding on that one word. And when Jesus says to Telestai, everything is finished. Jesus says this. This is a conqueror's cry of victory. This is a, God bless you, this is a lion's roar. This is a triumph of victory. What I love that a lot of commentators say is that normally a crucified person could barely gasp for breath and whisper, but the fact that Jesus raised his voice shows that he was still in control. Since the Garden of Eden, blood ran due to sin. And when Jesus said it's finished, there was no need for blood to run anymore. No more sacrifices. Perfect obedience was finished. The satisfaction of God's justice finished. And the power of Satan, sin, and death was done. Because what Jesus begins, Jesus finishes. And then the last one, number seven. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you share in that victory? That Jesus lifted up his life. Do you share in the victory of Christ? Or are you on the outside looking in? If you're a believer, do you get excited that when Jesus says it is finished, as he hangs on a cross, there's victory in him? Do you get excited about the gospel? I'm serious. Like, believers, do we get excited? For the things of the Lord. Like, do we get excited to come into God's house and worship? Do we get excited to go love our neighbor? Do we get excited for the things of the Lord? Or are we stiff-necked? Are we stuck? Are we just going through the motions? Missing God in our everyday life. Man, this time of year is a time for you and me to turn to Christ wholeheartedly. With a willing heart and a humble mind. Do you live that way? Can you get, a res can you get excited for the resurrection? Because I'll tell you guys, man, I, I, I want to get excited. Like, I don't want to put on a suit and tie and just stand there. Like, I don't. Like, I want my outside to reflect my inside. Like, I want to be excited here, and then I want to be excited here. I want both. I don't want to just be excited here and be like, oh, good, good father hurts who you are. No, like, I want to praise the Lord. I want to praise the Lord with you. Do you want to praise the Lord with the person next to you?
Like, do you get excited? Because that's what Jesus died for and rose for, for us to know him. And then not just that, but be excited to know him and then to make his name known. That's what the death of Jesus was all about. And that's what the resurrection is all about. He is the son of suffering. And through his blood, you have freedom.